I'm walking all alone down my yellow brick road and I stomp to the beat of my own drum. Welcome to Stacked Keys Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stackhouse, a podcast to feature women who are impressive in the work world or in raising a family or who have hobbies that can make us all be encouraged, want to hear what makes these women passionate and get up in the morning or what they wish that they'd known earlier in life. Grab your keys and stomp to your own drum. Well, today I am in Crisp County and Cordell, Georgia, and I am with Jenna Rhodes. Yes. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm honored. Well, I'm very excited to share who you are and what you're about um, with the audience. So we'll just jump right in and kind of tell us who is Jenna today? Who would people know you as today? Um, well, um, they may know me as Jenna Stanford Rhodes. Um, I've grown up in Cordial um, pretty much my whole life, and I did pageants growing up. I was real active in sports and cheer and um, really big in the community as far as volunteering with hospice and doing a lot of things of that nature. And um, I graduated from high school here. I went to the University of Georgia. I graduated with a degree in biology and came back home to marry a farm boy. And there was no biology jobs um, in the area. I actually lived in Florida for a year and took a job as an alternative school teacher and fell in love um, with education. And so I came back and got my teacher certification through an alternative preparation program called the Georgia TAP program. And I became a high school science teacher. Oh, wow. And um, I immediately pursued my master's and my specialist degree. And I'm now working on um, my dissertation. So I would describe myself as a Christian, a farmer's wife, um, a mother of two boys, and a lover of all things neuroscience and um, anything that can make a difference in the lives of a child. Oh, that's awesome. So that really is a different route. I mean, with biology, yes. were you more in the field uh, with biology? I, I, I come from the... I have a child who is in the wildlife world, and so her biology friends are out there in the the creeks and fields. And Um, So what kind of biology? No, I've always, my dream growing up was to help people. I I love people. Um, I feed off of people. The more people, I feel like the more energy I get. And I always wanted to help people. And sadly, growing up in a small town, you don't see a lot of careers you see um, teaching nursing lawyer doctor um, police officer you know you don't see you see very traditional careers and there's nothing wrong with that but in that traditional career you see you know when you're young you see oh if you want to help people and have um, a nice life as far as money you know you become a doctor or a lot you know it's the traditional stereotype and I thought you know I love science so I'll just become a doctor I can help people I'll be I'll have a comfortable life and um, when I got to the university I mean I did fine in my coursework I enjoyed it but when I got an internship I passed out in the Uh operating room and so I quickly learned that maybe this was not 
you know, what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to change my major because I loved, I love science. And so I thought I could go out into the field, you know, and, and work in that aspect. But then I thought maybe I could just be a physician's assistant and not have to do the the operating the or, operating um, you know, not go to school as long. It was just one of those times where you're not really sure what you want to do with your life yeah. and you have this degree and, you know, what are you going to do? And I saw an ad um, in Lakeland, Florida, needing alternative school teachers in science. And I thought, you know, I can do this until I figure my life out. And I really think that was um, a calling from God or just a sign from God, you know, to take a chance. And it, it ended up working out. And I realized that teaching is where I needed to be. But because of my science background, I knew a lot about the brain and how the brain learns, how it operates. And so I did not go through becoming a teacher traditionally. So I didn't know the traditional pedagogy of teaching. I based my teaching off of what I knew about the brain. And it just blew my mind that our education programs, our teacher preparation programs, do not teach this to teachers. And so that is really where I became passionate about my job and what I want to see change um, as far as education and how we really need to work on completely transforming education into being more conducive to how the brain works instead of just traditional how it's always been done. And so that's kind of how I've mapped out my road. And so I've been able to blend my biology along with my passion of helping people in a realm that I love, which is children. Wow. Okay. I need you to go a little deeper for me of what do you mean by how the brain works relating to education? Okay. So our brain is super complex. And in the 1990s and late, you know, early 2000s is called the decade of the brain. And so it's really when, you know, you're, you have fMRI, which is your functional magnetic resonance imaging machines, we're able to go in and scan brains and kind of see, you know, what was going on. And so our neuroscientists are now going, okay, we, we know how this works. We know how this works. But then we have our cognitive psychologists who are saying, we knew that because of the behavior that we're seeing. Now you're just putting science behind it. So it's not really new. But then we have our educators over here going, oh my gosh, this is, this is huge. I need to know this. But the language between all three groups is totally, is totally different and disconnected. So this group doesn't know how to communicate with educators. But if I'm in a lab, I need to know what problems we're seeing today to try to study. So we need to really to blend together. So our brain doesn't learn by sitting. So every 15 minutes, your brain really needs a break. Um, you need to get outside, you need to play because then that high, that awakens your brain and it heightens your recept your you know receptors to receive information and make it stick more so in one of the books by john medina it's called brain rules he he literally says school does everything to the brain that we're not supposed to do we put them in a closed environment we put them in a classroom we tell them to sit here and listen your brain doesn't work like that it thrives on novelty and so it and it thrives on security but Really what we need is, you know, every five or ten minutes get out, have the kids get active again, set them back down, and now they're more receptive 
to what you're about to present to them. And when I say five to 10 minutes, and you don't even have to get up, um, he's actually won like professor of the year for years, because what he does is he teaches a lesson. And every 10 to 15 minutes, he throws in an emotional story, linking to the content. Well, any kind of emotion draws people back in. And so it wakes their brain back up, makes them connect. And now you're able to get back into your content and teach them again, because you've, you've caught their attention. And so here, and traditionally, you sit here, you do exactly what I say, because that's what we've always done. But it's it doesn't really your brain doesn't learn that way. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, in the past, you had people that could complete school and people that that could not. And it wasn't their fault. It was because we were trying to force them into doing something that their brain just really wasn't almost not capable of because we weren't working with them in the correct way. Okay. But that means change at a core level. Yes. Which takes getting people on board. Yes. And money. And I know we like to have science and research behind what we're doing, and it makes it more believable and and maybe a little easier to get across. But, I mean, what do you do? do? How do you get there? Well, um, that's actually... One of the big things I'm, I'm actually writing my dissertation right now on it on if we can teach the teachers the neuroscience of learning and it's a field called mind brain and education and so it's blending these three fields um, if we can teach them how the brain learns how the brain operates will that impact teacher efficacy and what that means is um, studies have shown empirical research has shown that the teacher is the most important factor of student achievement. And we tend to not want to believe that because of, of the different backgrounds that our students come from. But at the end of the day, we're super important as educators. Um, we, we have so much, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We have so much power to change the life of a student because we're honestly rewiring a student's brain. Mm-hmm. And so, I want to know if I can get this research to them, what will happen? Well, um, there's a book called NeuroTeach, and Glenn Whitman and Ian, Lord, I'm going to forget, Ian Zelger, uh, he's going to kill me for butchering his name. (laughs) They wrote a phenomenal book, and they have a school that they built around these principles where the teachers had to go through and learn this mind, brain, and education research. They had to learn how to reach every student. And I actually contacted him on Twitter and he and I are actually in the works right now. We're having a brainstorming session next week um, to figure out how to get funding to bring his program to our school district. Um, Yes. And the really cool thing is he actually got a million dollar grant from Mark Zuckerberg's wife um, from Facebook And he has rolled this program out in multiple schools and seen great success. The difference is the schools he's rolled them out in have not been Title I school districts. They're more affluent um, school districts. And so he's really interested to see how it will work here. Um, And so you you have to start somewhere and you have to empower your teachers. Um, Teachers a lot of times get really beat down. because at the end of the day, we all care about our students, and and every teacher wants to make a difference. But you keep getting more and more and more on you, 
And so sometimes I think it would be nice for them to see, hey, you do make a difference. Let me show you the ways we can change our teaching in a small way to help you become more effective. And now you feel better about yourself. And now whose lives are being touched? All those students now. So it's it's a process and we're getting there. I've actually talked to Kristen Gagnier from um, Johns Hopkins University. She's in on the project with Glenn and I. She helps write his training material. So she has worked in inner city schools in Maryland. So she kind of understands what we're trying to do here. And we're all three sitting down next week to brainstorm and come up with funding opportunities um, to bring that program here to our county. Wow, that's really huge. Yes, I'm super. I'm I'm super hopeful. I'm very excited. Now, in your county, there are how many elementary schools? Is There's um, one primary, one? one elementary, one middle, and one high. So it's it's really a good testing ground right. because you're pulling everybody in from every socioeconomic right standpoint mm-hmm. and there's probably what one or two private schools if there's that? one private school okay so it really does give a, a good testing mm-hmm. base yes um what do teachers think I mean in your research that you've pulled together have you been involved with with the teacher population population. here um i have i've done some professional development on the neuroscience of learning and making it stick and it is very well received i mean they they constantly email me and say hey can we get more on this and and they bring it up in their meetings that other people come back and tell me hey they they talked to me about this um the biggest thing we have to overcome in education is neuro myths so what happens is these neuroscientists put out these studies and they put them behind a paid wall and a paid journal and we don't have access to that and not only do we not have access but the language in that is written for you know fellow neuroscientists so it's right. it's not written for us to really understand and take into practice yet so what happens is the media and other people get a hold of this and they oversimplify it and then they kind of push it to educators so one of the biggest issues we have in education is like learning styles so this big marketing company comes in and says hey you need to differentiate to your students because of learning styles and the neuroscience backs it up so you're either going to be auditory kinesthetic you know visual and you should teach your kids in that manner well that's a neuromyth that's not what the research said the research said we can prefer a learning style But we learn with multiple modalities, meaning I need to see it, hear it, and if it's possible, maybe be active with it. But I don't have one. You can't teach geometry strictly auditorily. Right. You can't teach Spanish kinesthetically. And that's kind of what they were pushing, you know. And here, I mean, everywhere, people bought all these. They bought into the learning style. This is what you give to your visual learners. This is what you get. And it they made millions of dollars on something that had no empirical evidence that it worked. And then like the right brain, left brain theory, you know, there's so many neuromyths that we buy into and we really need to dispel these neuromyths so that we can teach based on, on scientific evidence and not oversimplification of research. Okay. To oversimplify, how do you do that? How do you get that? I mean, I love journals myself. Right. So to be able to get in, and I'm a little disappointed that now all of my children are not in programs where they have access. To journals. But um, 
so how do you you start with a program like i'm trying to bring in and the very first part of neuro teach the very first part of the i say i intertwine mbe which is mind brain and education um and neuro teach because neuro teach is based off of the principles of mind brain education um and so the first we call it like neuro teach 101 and that whole first class is dispelling neuromyths and understanding brain plasticity, which means your brain is constantly changing and learning new things and rewiring every day. Um, neurogenesis happens until the day you die. So there's a huge myth that if you're going to teach them something, it better be between the ages of, you know, zero to four and, or, you know, before they turn eight or before they get to middle school because they don't learn anymore after that. That is not true. But so many people have it in their head that after this age, you know, it's really hard to get them to learn. That's not that's not accurate. And so we're teaching them that we're teaching them, you know, the parts of the brain. What does this part do? How does it work together? You know, how does this relate to my field? And then dispelling these neuromyths and teaching them how to not fall into the trap of buying into this again. Teaching them how to be, you know, connoisseurs of information. And with social media and the media, you know, it's just as big of a problem with all adults as it is children. We see something and we immediately think, you know, it's legitimate. And so you start with, you know, what we're trying to do, which is the first course and teaching them to be, you know, aware of the neuromyths that are out there, learn the parts of the brain that are pertinent to them in their classroom. And then we move into more deeper content, which is teaching them how to be their own researchers in the classroom. Oh, wow. So... But this changes, this can change everything. It can mm-hmm. change your textbooks, which is a huge money or whole operation. Yes, yes. It changes methodology. Mm-hmm. So there's a tremendous amount there. So is this program going to be, um, is it packaged in such a way to where some of those other things will fall by the wayside naturally? Or or do you know? Um I'm not sure, and I, and I do not like the word packaged. Um, I, f- I feel like in education, well, not even in education, in life in general, we have fallen, um, we're kind of trapped by a package. Yeah, we want a oh, package, I agree with you. package it, and then we can yeah. just roll it out like that. Put it in a box because it's easy. Yeah. We teach our children from birth, you are unique. Nobody else is like you. You are unique. Nobody else is like you. But we want a package that rolls out everything exactly the same. Well, you know, you're telling your child you're unique, but you have to learn like everybody else. Yeah. That makes no sense. And so um, I don't think it will be a package. I think every teacher will take something different from this. I think they will apply different concepts to their classroom at different times. I also think it will enable them to see that teaching this child, you know, you have to know your students. And instead of saying, I'm one teacher and, you know, we're going to teach it this way, it might shift the mindset of saying, I have 30 students and I need to figure out how to best teach all 30 students. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a mindset shift. And I, I, we have, you know, I'm not here with my job. I'm here as as Jenna Rhodes, but we have some of the best teachers I've ever worked with here in um, Crisp County, and they're all very receptive, and they want to know the information, and they want to change. And 
it's it's just it's uplifting when you see them wanting to come back for more and they'll even say hey what's that book I want to buy it I want to read it myself I want to you know and that that's the initiative that you have to take to constantly get better is you have to go out and you have to research but I think that and when you say fall by the wayside the the I don't the older practices yes they're going to fall by the wayside I I do think um some things you're never going to get rid of and that's just life you know you're not going to have a hundred percent complete change but I do think over time when they learn things that the practices that maybe are not as effective I think they will naturally just kind of dissipate yeah um have you noticed that in school that the textbooks you know when when electronics came in there was a class and I can't remember now what grade it was supposed to be but by the time they reached that grade there would no longer be a physical textbook what have you seen happen with that and with this kind of, of mindset thought? Oh, okay. Um, I'll probably, every educator in America will probably want to shoot me. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I never used a textbook. Um, for AP Biology, I did. But other than that, I very, very rarely used a textbook in my classroom um, because of the World Wide Web. Um, it, to me, a textbook was a package. And I may look at it to kind of see, get ideas or see a picture, but our state standards kind of give us a guideline of what they want us to teach. And then I could put together what I wanted to teach based on that standard. I didn't need the textbook. Um, I could find articles online. I could find things for students to read that were more, it was more relevant to what, to where we are and what they're interested in because I mean, as a textbook company, you don't know what we do here in Cordell, Georgia. But if I can teach, you know, invasive species based on an invasive species that we're having a problem with here, that's going to be more relevant to my student. And I need to do that instead of just using something from a textbook. So um, I have seen a big shift. The biggest thing I've seen is that parents just can't let it go. I mean, I want my kid to bring home a textbook and I'm like, it's okay, you know. You have you have these resources at your fingertips, but I really think it's more of a resistance to change because we've always had it and not necessarily because it's needed. Does that oh, definitely. make sense? So it sounds to me like that that's kind of a thread that goes through your philosophy. It is. Is to change and to stay uh, more focused on meeting the need. Yes. And the need changes the method or right or pathway that you go right will change it um okay so i know i'm jumping around a little bit but your dissertation um dissertations are long process right yeah so how did you focus down on the direction you wanted to go and how far along are you and lord um i knew from the day i entered my program that i wanted to do bringing neuroscience to the classroom um i did not know under what capacity under I mean and and I'm very scattered and I always see this huge picture I have a hard time getting the actionable steps to get there yeah so it was really hard you know dwindling it down and finding gaps in the research of what was needed um and I didn't really want to involve student measurement meaning um this is more of a pilot study linking this to teacher efficacy has really never been done 
um, especially not in our state. But I could have done it like if we teach the teachers this, will their student scores come up? But I feel like we measure, we, we've, we put too much validity on a, on a teacher based on student success as it is. So I just wanted to see if this would make teachers like their, like yeah, their job. And, and what I don't mean like their, you know, if they would now feel as powerful and empowered as they should feel. Mm-hmm. And because if you have empowered teachers, you can change, I mean, you can change the world. And so that's kind of where, um, I was just looking one night at some Hattie research and how much of an impact teachers had. And then I got to looking at research um, that teachers across the nation took about how they don't feel valued in this. And I thought, well, you know what? If teachers are so important, and it says that when teachers know this, they feel more powerful. So why can't we, why don't I do my study to see if I bring this here, if that changes, you know, teacher perceived self-efficacy? So how will you measure it? Um, we're going to do focus walks. And um, actually, Kristen at Hopkins has sent me some survey tools and methods that have actually been vetted to measure that. We have, um, when I say focus walks, yeah. we will actually go into classrooms and kind of gauge the um, teacher student rapport Um, we will also do interviews and we'll do group interviews so we'll do an initial interview and there will be an initial assessment of what you knew prior what you do what you know so it'll be a mixed methods Um, so we'll have some quantitative data on actually seeing if they you know how much they learned and then we'll actually have actual focus when I say focus walk sorry we'll have personal interviews and group interviews asking them you know how'd you feel before then now how do you feel during how do you feel after and then I will go in and code and thematically you know group their responses together yeah and then some actual physical observation yes you'll do physical observation Mm -hmm. and um, it's actually slipping my mind right now because I'm not there yet Um, the name of the tool that they recommended me using I'm actually due to do my first defense at the middle of November. So I'm still not even done with chapter one and two yet. So I've got a long yeah. way to go, but I'm, but I'm getting there. So, wow. So this is a pretty long process. It is. How do you balance yourself? I mean, you're <laughs> full time working, you're passionate. You're probably, I know this probably mm-hmm. consumes a lot of conversation. It does. But how do you get it done? How do you get all of it done? Um, my, my mom told me all the time, you make time for what you want to make time for. Um, and I, I don't sleep very much, yeah. but I just, it fuels me. Um, I, I wake up, I, I wake up at four in the mornings and exercise with a group of girlfriends. I go home, I change, I get dressed, I get my kids dressed and fed. And, um, my husband is great. He helps, you know, a lot in the mornings and, you know, I work all day I have the kids in the afternoons. We do our activities. I get home at night and I read and I research. But the beauty of what I do is that it's embedded into my job. Right. And so I feel like I'm constantly living my passion and researching because it has everything to do with with what I'm doing. So um, I just I, I just don't ever sit down. I really I mean, I really don't. That's what my husband says all the time. He's like, can you just come and sit down? But I don't feel like my brain allows me. I just. You know, there's always something for me to do and research and figure out. And that's kind of how, you know, I'm wired. And I think some people are just, they're just wired differently. Yeah, exactly. and, and they can bounce around more, I guess you'd say. 
Well, you do have to find the balance and then your kids. And so you have such a vested interest in this. Are your kids in this school? They are. My kids are here. Um, I'm a product of this school system. I believe in this school system um, really with everything in me. And I want nothing more than to see us become you know, the number one school system in the state. Um, I, I love this school system because we have, we're a Title I school, and our county has been rated the county with the highest childhood poverty in the state of Georgia. Um, childhood poverty affects brain development. I mean, it does. It Their brains, people growing up in poverty, their brains are actually not wired in the same way, in the same way, people who did not grow up in poverty, how their brains are wired, they have very little executive functioning skills, which means they're unable to set goals, they're unable to plan ahead, they're unable to control their emotions, and that continues through adulthood. And so, the term generational poverty is real, but it's not necessarily poverty. It's because their brain is not wired to make the decisions that they necessarily need to make to make a change. And so that is one of my passions here. I feel like they're, they get judged or they get pushed to the side when it's really, it's not a conscious decision that these, you know, that they make. It's really something in their brain. They're just, they're not given a fair chance. And my dream would be to start this program here with teachers and then to push it out to parents and to our community so that they can learn how to build those executive functioning skills in their children and for the adults who grew up in poverty, how they can start building those executive functioning skills so they can start making, you know, setting goals and and making um, decisions based on rational reasons, I guess you would say, instead of impulse. In, in hearing what you're saying, it almost seems like the teachers are going to have to have some hand-holding because you're having a lot to learn about 30 kids and mm-hmm. poverty. And, and I guess I went to a seminar not long ago, and they talked about trauma. And trauma, we have so long thought, is physical, mm-hmm. and it's not. it's not. And so this falls into a trauma. Right. And so there's, it's just so vast. I mean, I can see it be being incredibly overwhelming. So how do you get them the help to, I mean, a teacher can be as passionate as they want to be, but to realistically get through the day dealing and be it. effectively dealing, how? I think um, you have to, what is it? You take one bite of the elephant at a time. Yeah. And I really think, we get bogged down in solving the world's problem instead of solving one student's problem at a time. Um, so my philosophy is let's get it out there. Let's see what works. And are you going to save all 30 students? You know, there's no program that's 100% effective. It's not, and this is not a program, but, you know, nothing is 100% yeah, effective. True. But it will change how we view it will provide us more empathy to help them and at the end of the day I think that's how I tackle it I say this is not a silver bullet I mean there's no such thing I think we go out we do what we now know is best for the children and we we help 
all those that we possibly can. Yeah. And, and that's that's kind of how I look at it. And your dissertation will be published? It will. Well, hopefully it hopefully. will be. That's yes. the goal? That's the goal. So, And so that's um, part of it is to add to existing research or are you finding that you're disputing some research that you've come across? Well, I mean, some people are saying that, you know, there's no way to link neuroscience and education. I'm Kim Brewer. It's a, it's a bridge too far is what he always says. There's no way, you know, you can take the science and put it into classroom practice. Um, so there are some disputes and there are people that are saying this is not teaching us anything more than we already knew. And nobody is saying it is. What we're saying is simply we need to make this knowledge available to our teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to get them to understand how the brain works, how kids can retain information more, you know, how we can better teach all of our students. Um, and so, Lord, I forgot what question you had asked, but I think, um, I really just think if we start that way, mm-hmm. we're going to see a difference. But it, we have to stand up to universities and, and everything else because they don't teach this well, i was going to say it almost has to go back in that classroom before that teacher comes out of the classroom right and that's why i'm doing in-service teachers and not pre-service but like johns hopkins harvard um university of minnesota a lot of schools are now going back and adding, adding all of this to their um, pre-service teacher programs or they're adding it as a master's, you know, mind-brain education, neuroeducation. They're, they're because they've realized the importance. And, and the number, like Mary, Dr. Marielle Hardiman, she has brain-targeted teaching. Um, and like I said, I don't like a program. But one of the first things she says is that kids have to have an emotional environment which they're comfortable in number one thing of teaching is an emotional environment that's an that's been around for years you know the saying if they don't know you know if they don't know you care about them they don't care what you know or what you know whatever the yeah. saying is um and that is so true and that's just something i think that we have forgotten over time because we're we have so much pressure on us from the state national level to drill these standards and to perform on a standardized test that we forget the good practices of of teaching yeah yeah I, and you know you have to look at what's going on I, i've always had trouble with this if if you have a standardized test they come in they're doing that you don't know if they were standing on their head while they were doing that test so did they run out of time because they were kind of dancing around or the pencil was being twirled and there's so many other elements besides just coloring the little circle well, and I love Sir um, Ken Robinson, and if you've never watched any of his videos on YouTube or read any of his books, he um, I say he changed my life. Um, but his whole philosophy is we're doing educa- education came about during the Industrial Revolution to teach people how to work on a factory line, and it hasn't changed since. Yeah. So we're still well, trying to prepare people. You know, it, it's very rigid and structured and he said you know and i'm all about the belief that you should not be in a certain grade because of an age you know kids don't have an expiration date just because you're nine doesn't mean you can do multiplication or just because you're nine doesn't mean you're already past multiplication and that's one of his his teachings is you know why are we grouping kids based on age that really doesn't make 
sense. Um, when a, when a kid comes in, I can evaluate them and see what he knows. And then I can put kids, you know, I'm going to teach you from where you're at, not because the state or the government says, because you're here, this is where you start. Yeah. You know, that really, in, in my example is look at a fifth grade class picture. You have kids that look like they're 16. You have kids that look like they're eight. Yeah. So if physically they look that different, imagine, you know, internally how their brains are programmed differently your experiences shape your life so that is one of the things that I wish we would you know open up with education is the fact that we put kids in a grade like they have an expiration date yeah and that that simply is not that's not how life works do you find sometimes that um, people teachers will see you walking down the hall and they make a quick turn into another room because they may not want to talk about it. Um, well, my job now is really I do technology and they may walk in their room because they don't want me to come teach them something new. But for the <laughs> most part, they've all been really receptive. Yeah. Um, they, they may not be when I'm not there, but, yeah. you know, when I'm there, they're really receptive. Um, when, when you have the example, uh, when you have the example and you show it and you can give them – you know, a story and draw them in. Everybody here believes in the children. Yeah. At the end of the day, our teachers believe in the children and everybody wants to see children do good. It's just, you get so down. So I think sometimes they enjoy hearing the positive stories and hearing, hey, you know, what if you do this? If you just did this, you know, and a lot of times I'll say, stop worrying about the test. Love the child and love your job, and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah. And sometimes they just need to hear that. And our administration yeah. in our county is wonderful. You know, they, they preach to them all the time. You know, it's all about building relationships. Well, and it also seems, too, if you're reaching out with these other resources that are so huge. Yes. I mean, that is an honor. Oh, I to, was To have tickled. that kind of attention <laughs> and then, you know, to be able to turn around and give that. Right is is a vote of confidence. Well, you I'm, wouldn't bring them in here if you didn't think that there'd be a a reception of the. Uh, I mean, it, at least right. to embrace a try. Right, and our. I mean, when when this opportunity came up, I went to the principals and I said, you know, and and everybody, please, yes. And so right now we're just, you know, it's an in infancy, and yeah. we're just trying to. The the issue is funding. Yeah. I mean, it's all funding how do we afford to bring these people in and help us and you know the curriculum how do we get the funding to get the hours to write the curriculum and and help each other out and develop this and then bring it in here because you know Ohio Maryland Georgia we're you know all over and they've used a grant already so we feel confident that we can get another one we just have to sit down and get it written out and find a foundation you know, maybe that would support us. Yeah, because you need to have long enough support to, to actually it get it all the way through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, you're in technology now. Yes. And so, talk to me just a little about uh, a little bit about technology in school. What does that mean? Um, well, it takes on a whole different meaning. Everybody just thinks kids reading books on an iPad or doing work on an iPad or, or a Chromebook, and that's not it at all. What technology can do is it can allow you to take that lesson deeper than it ever could have gone. Um, for example, the other day, um, I 
met a lady on Twitter um, and said, she said, look, we're trying to do Google Hangouts with all 50 states. So what Google Hangouts is, is it's like FaceTime through email. And so I said, look, we have a second grade class that would be willing to do it. They're actually studying maps right now. And so what you do is it's called Mystery Hangout. And so we go in and we teach them the art of asking yes or no questions. And they have to learn map skills. And they have to ask this other classroom yes or no questions to try to figure out where, where they're they located. Are. Oh, that's fun. But the cool thing is, is because it's like FaceTime, both classes can see each other the whole time. And so the kids go up, they introduce, you know, they all say my name is, you know, they do an introduction for the class. So it's helping them with public speaking skills. It's helping them figure out yes or no questions. It, they learned map skills. They had to learn time zones. And so the cool thing was, you know, we would ask a question, they would answer, they would ask a question, and then we would mute it. And the kids would come back and talk about it and then say, oh, my question doesn't need to be asked anymore so they're using their reasoning skills to develop I mean these are second graders and they figured it out that this school was from Minnesota it was from upper Minnesota and you know it was really neat because after we figured it out we share fun facts about where we're from and they one of the students in their class said y'all have on short sleeves and shorts and we were like you know they have on jackets it was 48 degrees there and 97 degrees here wow and, and for second, second grader gets that opportunity exactly. to observe and to see the difference you know you can see something on a map but right. you don't really get it but they it. were able to ask questions landmarks i mean i think one kid said do you have a professional baseball team there and they did, but another student had already asked if you're up north, so we were able to, you know, yeah, go across their map. And cr- but it was yeah. really neat, and that is technology in school. It's okay. providing kids an opportunity that they would never have had yeah. had it not been for technology. And I can also see how that can transfer to using technology at home. Oh, yeah. There's a different purpose than just watching, you know, garbage or whatever right. on some piece of technology that they have at home right and to even share with parents of hey there's a, you can really research on that thing right and so. we I show um, I do something each week called tech tip Tuesday and I send a video of a really cool tech tip out to all the system um, and one of the ones is like brush ninja and so it's like a digital flip book it makes um, the kids can draw and do different things and make it what they call a gif or if you say gif that that's the big debate right. um, and it animates it and the kids go home and they show their they get on it at home to do stuff that's not educational and um, auto draw which is a google ai experiment where you draw something and google says oh were you trying to draw this and gives you a list of things to choose from and then the kids can show what they learned that day in class like that because then they can add text to it you know it's making it's taking their learning deeper and then they can go home and share these tools and the things that they're doing on technology that they would not have been able to do without it um a really cool story i showed them um it's called text to or it's called voice typing we have a student who struggles with his writing and and spelling and 
the teacher just came to me crying and she said, I've got to show you this. I showed him that tool and look at what he wrote. He wrote his very first story that he and other people could read because he had, he could not do it writing it. But with this tool, he could say it. And then she said, and he even went, oh, I got to go back and add my punctuation. And so he went back and added punctuation. And he would have never been able to do that without technology. So that's what technology is in the schools. Well, and there's no reason that if you have something that's a hindrance to learn how to conquer it. That's That's right. That's education. You're you're overcoming it. And, And think about the the opportunities that just opened up for that child and the confidence he has now. Oh, definitely. Because of that. So it's, it's cool. I love stories like that. That is great. Okay. I do need to ask though. Okay. You've got all the people and the naysayers out there that say, but it's bad and we need them off of technology and there are dangers. So do you instruct or how do you handle that in the school system? Um, Well, as a parent, I do not allow my children to have, you know, a lot of tech time or screen time at home because there's a difference in product. I say productive screen time and unproductive screen time. So if you're playing a mindless game, your brain is actually switching processes and you become so engrossed in what you're doing that when you ha- when somebody takes it away, it really makes you angry. It, I mean, it it's changing how you process. And I saw that with my youngest child. He's five, and I, I would say he was addicted. I mean, to technology. And so I've taken it away, and I have seen a difference in him. But at school, your kids are not doing. Um, they're not gaming. They're not watching YouTube. They're not doing those type of things but they are being put in learning environments that allow them to take the content they're learning and take it deeper they're learning cool tools and tricks but they're not sitting there becoming a slave to a device like they are when they're doing things on their own free time yeah and did they use it at, to do school projects away from home i mean my children use, no just in general education i mean do y'all in in the elementary grades i don't guess they they have to use it at home or do they oh um if they have it at home then yes they are more than welcome we have um students that make all kind of presentations they make movies we have students here that make vocabulary videos on we video we do we have a news station and they can work on that at home Mm -hmm. and from what i've seen the parents don't mind it then because there's a purpose right behind it other than mindless entertainment i guess you would say being in an area that that is full of poverty do you see that there's a huge divide between what some kids have at home and some kids don't and do you have to cope with that here um i would be willing to say that almost every child has a parent or has somebody at home with a smartphone that has the apps and all those things but very few um children have like Chromebooks and things Mm -hmm. at home. Most of them do have a computer, um, but some of our um, children in poverty, they do not have that type of device at home. Luckily, what we do here, almost everything they can utilize from an app or our teachers are very understanding and we don't really give, technology is not the only means um, to getting the assignment done. They, we have options. 
Okay. So that makes it nice. And then yeah. we also allow students, um, sometimes they'll allow them to check it out, you know, things like that. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I have a couple of other questions and we'll need to wrap up, I'm sure. But um, is this where you saw you were headed as you were coming out of school, launching into life? I mean, no. is this the passion that... that um, no, I grew you? up this... I mean, I'm telling you, I could talk for hours and you probably still would have no idea what I was talking about but I grew up singing and I I mean if I didn't go to med I always wanted to move to Nashville and give it a try Um, my mom and her two sisters actually did and so she was terrified of me doing that so um, I did pageants and my dream you know I graduate I'm going to move to Nashville and become famous Um, but I met my husband in the middle of all that and decided you know I didn't want to I didn't want to go that route anymore. Um, and when I came home, I said I would never move back here. I would never live in a yeah, small town. Happen. I would. I, I learned from an early age never to say never because you right. always do what you That's say you never right. will. But I don't regret it one bit because I feel like I was planted somewhere that I could make a difference because I have so many ties and I can reach out and I have the support of a small town and and of a small community, a small town community. Um, We really do band together and and help other people. So I feel like this is kind of where I needed to be to, to start making a difference in, in what I want to see a difference made in, which is the lives of, of children and people in general. Yeah. I can see where you're affecting families. Just, I mean, you may have the younger child in here, but it um, has impact at home, right? Well, for thank sure. You. Um, all right. If you had one superpower, twenty four hours, and that's all you had, what would you? What would be your superpower, and what would you do with it, and why? So I could only have it for twenty four hours. Just twenty four hours. Oh my goodness! Um, if I could have it for more than twenty four hours, it would be, be the ability to not sleep. Um, but if I could only have a superpower for 24 hours, um, mm, it would probably be to clone. Um, I would clone myself and a few other people to go in and get projects going and started and, and maybe to fix some things. And then we could, once things got going, we could come back together, I guess you'd say. So maybe cloning. I don't know. I like that. Um, what kind of advice would you give the, this podcast is directed towards women and women who are out there making a difference and and you sure are both in the community uh-huh. and in your career and and in your family what advice would you give that younger adult younger woman oh lord um i was i was raised and my husband said this and and it really meant a lot to me i was raised to never think i couldn't Like there was just never, you know, there was never a room that I would walk into and feel uncomfortable or feel like I didn't belong. Or there was never something that I said, I'm going to do this, that I was ever told, no, you can't. You know, if you want something, you just go for it. And that, I mean, that's just it. And I, and, and I tell people all the time, you treat everybody the same. It doesn't matter if it's the president of the United States or, you know, a homeless person, you treat them the same because everybody has a heart. We have values, but to the young girls today, I would just say, 
I mean, I feel like it's so cliche, but to never accept no, but to not be afraid, to not be afraid of no, it's no. I mean, at the end of the day, how, what's wrong with no? Get back tomorrow and see if it's no again. You know, go back to the drawing board and ask it another way and see if it's no again. Keep going until you turn that no into a yes. And that's kind of how I live my that's kind of how I live. Okay, well, you said it won't work this way, but I'm going to go back. I'm going to try it this way. You know, you just you just don't back down. And if you if you will take that to heart, you'll go far. And, and to me, you'll have a fulfilled life because you just feel like, I mean, you really do feel like the world's at your fingertips. You just have to go find a way to, to get it in your whole hand. Are there any failures that you have just gone, oh, man. If only I just hadn't done that or, or, or a success that just stands out in your mind. Um, there's been, there's always failure. I tell my students, I I would tell my students and I tell my kids, if you don't fail, that means you're not trying anything new. Um, that's what Bill Gates, um, that, that was what I've read that he would ask his kids at dinner every night, you know, what'd you fail at today? Cause if you're not failing, you're not trying. Um, failure is not bad. It's how you respond to failure. Um, goodness, I would, I mean, some of the big failures I've had, I should be well, way more deep and further along into my dissertation. And I let, you know, life get in the way. That's probably a failure. I'm not failed, but you know, it's one of the things that bothers me. Um, as far as the success, I would just say my family, you know, I really value a big success of mine is is keeping my family my family time and keeping that sacred and and not worrying about if the house is clean or my clothes are washed or I mean I have clothes not saying that but that kind of stuff doesn't bother me I want to build experiences and so I think my success has been living in the moment instead of always looking at ahead or in my past living just right now I mean I still plan but living in the right now and soaking it in I think that's probably one of my biggest successes that's awesome is there anything we've gone down a whole lot of different paths is there something no 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 I love it that's the whole point is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that you do oh lord I I don't know I I would just say probably always remember you know why you do something always remember the the reason why because it is easy to get bogged down when you hear no and you you get you forget always remember that spark that made you want to get started I think that's what I would tell people because if you if you forget that spark then the passion is gonna fade with every no so you just always remember the the why and um just just always keep you know, God and your family first. And then I think everything else will fall into place. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been awesome. Yes, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Find Stacked Keys Podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or anywhere you get your favorite 
podcast listen. You'll laugh out loud, cry a little, and find yourself encouraged. Join us for casual conversation that leads itself based on where we take it. From family to philosophy to work to meal prep toward beautifully surviving life.